All right. So when we left on Wednesday, we finished talking about AIDS and immunodeficiencies. And today, in terms of those last, well, first of all, hope everybody had a, a nice Thanksgiving break and everything worked out well. Want to get that out of the way first. And now we're back. We only have about two more weeks of school, crazy as it may sound. All right, everybody saw the message about where the final is, right? It's in the media auditorium. It's Monday the 19th. It's at 11.30, right? Remember, the final is <clears throat> just the third test. No big special anything about it. It's not going to have any more questions on it. It's not going to have any more essays on it than the normal tests we've been taking. It's the last third of the course. There's going to be a couple of questions about presentations on it. And you'll have three hours to take it. Okay? Hopefully it's not going to take three hours, but I'll be here for three hours if you want to be here for three hours. So we'll be, you know, I don't think time is going to be much of a problem in taking the test. So this last couple of lectures, we've been talking about malfunctioning of the immune system. So we've talked a lot about immunodeficiencies. Today we can talk about autoimmunity, the natural unresponsiveness, right, or tolerance to self is going to be broken, resulting in immune reactions against one's own antigens. It's also been called horror autotoxicus, right, the ability of the immune system to destroy self tissues. We are, we've talked a little bit about how T cells have been educated to ignore our own MHC molecules, right? We've been talking about how T cells have been programmed and gone to T cell school so that they're not able to react against our own tissues, our own cells, but sometimes that tolerance is going to be destroyed, okay? So autoimmunity, it affects about 5% of the population, so it's a pretty high number, anywhere from 5 to 7%. Majority of these cases are going to be women, about 75%. So some people feel that there has to be some sort of hormonal or some sort of other sort of interaction that is allowing the immune system, not allowing, but breaking that tolerance to self. <clears throat> In terms of the damage that can take place and the destruction of the self tissue, it can go anywhere from organ specific to, uh, to systemic, right? Non-organ specific. So in organ specific damage, it's going to be directly towards a target, right? An antigen unique to that single organ or gland. So this antigen, for whatever the reason, when these T cells, when these cells of the immune system were taught to ignore it, something has taken place, now we're going to be able to target that antigen. And if it's on a single organ or a gland, we're going to get damage to that gland because the immune system is going to use all those mechanisms that we've been talking about, right? NK cells, cytotoxic T cells, antibody molecules, everything are going to be directed towards that antigen, right? And we'll talk about why that may take place. And we're going to have an organ-specific damage, or we could have non-organ-specific or systemic damage, and this is going to be directed towards a broad range of target antigens, and it could involve a number of different organs and tissues, right? And we'll talk about, we'll give some examples for that. So if you sort of look, right, graphically, looking at the major sort of autoimmune disorders, 
right? Graves' disease, we'll talk a little bit about it. We had a presentation about Graves' disease. Things like rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes are thought to be uh, autoimmune or to have certain mechanisms, uh, to have certain aspects of an autoimmune response. Multiple sclerosis, right? We had a discussion about Sjorgen syndrome. And you can see here, in terms of the prevalence in the sex ratio, most of it's going to be female as opposed to the general population. And then if you look at those autoimmune disorders and things that can take place, we can see that we can get this gradation from organ-specific sort of damage in terms of Graves' disease to thyroid, diabetes, it might be the pancreas, going all the way down to multiple systemic autoimmune disorders in terms of, I think we had a discussion about scleroderma and definitely we had it about lupus. And in lupus we can get B cells and, and all sorts of different sort of involvement of many different tissues. So that's sort of the spectrum that we're looking at in terms of autoimmune diseases. When it comes down to the mechanism, we could probably sit here ourselves and we could start brainstorming and we could probably come up with a whole bunch of different mechanisms, right? And when you think about the immune system, you could think about any area that we've been talking about going wrong. B cells aren't working properly. So B cells are starting to secrete antibody molecules, right? The cellular immune response is, is out of whack, right? For whatever the reason. That those cells have broken tolerance and now are attacking cells. So we could probably go through a whole list just the way we're going to be able to go through these whole lists. And the first one that you can think about are those B cells. So instead of those B cells making antibodies to foreign epitopes, those B cells are now going to make autoantibodies, right, to modified or unmodified structures on the cell surface. So just like a macrophage or a B cell is going to be able to recognize a certain pathogen and start to make antibodies against cell surface components or proteins on that pathogen, same thing's going to be able to take place here, right? We're going to make autoantibodies to, right, a structure on the cell surface. Now, you put down modified or unmodified because sometimes, right, drug or chemical uh, induced structural alterization of self molecules can take place. So you'll see a lot of these autoimmune sort of responses in patients that are undergoing chemotherapy because those chemotherapeutic drugs Right? as they are attacking and destroying tumor cells, those chemicals and those drugs might start to alter antigens on the surface of those cells. And then, if the immune system recognizes them as being foreign, right, as long as there's enough overlap between the modified or the non-modified structures, then those antibodies are going to be directed against antigens on the surface of that host cell. Okay. So, in terms of these autoantibodies, we have two sort of classic examples where we're not really having any sort of tissue destruction at all. We're making antibodies and we're not going to have sort of the destruction of that cell that these antibodies are recognizing. The first one is myasthemia gravis. And in myasthemia gravis, we're going to be able to generate autoantibodies to a self tissue, so that clearly is going to fulfill the definition of an autoimmune disease. So in a normal sort of situation, 
right? The nerve is going to come into contact with a muscle. As information flows down that nerve and as chemical mediators are released from that nerve cell in order to be able to innervate a muscle, the major sort of uh, neurotransmitter, but all due respect to Dr. Pollock and everybody who's going to neurobiology after this, is the extent of my neurobiology, right? You probably know more about this than I do, right? So we're going to release acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is going to come into contact on the, muscle, on the muscle end plate with acetylcholine receptors, and that's going to result in, right, some sort of muscle activation, right? The motor end plate is where all of this sort of immune regulated or dysregulation is going to be able to take place. For whatever the reason, right, we are getting antibodies to those acetylcholine receptors. So those acetylcholine receptors are now engaged by antibody molecules and with steric hindrance, right, these antibodies are getting in the way of normal flow of acetylcholine to this muscle cell muscle activation is going to become inhibited, right? So, nothing wrong with the nerve. Nerve's doing exactly what it should do. Nothing wrong with the muscle. The muscle's going to do or would be capable of doing exactly what it would be capable of doing. The problem here is, right, these antibodies are binding to the acetylcholine receptor. Acetylcholine isn't able to engage and we're not going to get any muscle activation. So these patients are going to have muscle weakness and fatigue, right? And nothing's being destroyed here. Right? You could probably make the argument that perhaps if there are macrophages in the area, right, macrophages could come into contact here, they could become activated and maybe start to do destruction. But in these sort of early representations of the disease, we're just blocking acetylcholine from binding to the acetylcholine receptor. So this is the classic example of mycemia gravis. It's going to block the function. So these are the autoantibodies to the acetylcholine receptor. In Graves' disease, we get autoantibody to thyroid stimulating hormone. So this is a little bit different in terms of the etiology of what's taking place here. So let's look at the normal sort of uh, response that's going to take place here. All due respect to Dr. Campbell and endocrinology, this is the extent of my endocrinology. Right, so we get this thing that's called the pituitary gland. I'm sure you know a lot more about the pituitary gland than I do. It sits up here in the bottom, right at the bottom of your brain someplace. Pituitary gland is going to be able to release thymoid-stimulating hormone. Thyroid-stimulating hormone is going to engage the thyroid-stimulating hormone receptor. It's going to stimulate hormone synthesis in the thyroid gland itself. These uh, interactions are going to start to release right, these uh, hormones that are going to be able to go into the bloodstream. It's probably T3 and T4. We get this regulated release because as T3 and T4 starts to build up in the bloodstream, there's this negative feedback loop that's going to take place. And as the pituitary gland is able to sense more and more of T3 and T4 in the bloodstream, it starts to turn off the production of thyroid-stimulating hormone. The thyroid isn't going to be stimulated, and T3 and T4 is going to be able to drop. In 1835, Dr. Graves comes up and notices that patients have this excess, of this, not this excess ability, but this excess secretion of T3 and T4, right? 
not much difference between T3 and T4. They're involved with things like with uh, things like metabolism and, and sort of activities like that. So Dr. Graves sees that certain patients have excess T3 and T4, and it's not until years later that we come to figure out what's going to take place here. What's happening is we're making this autoantibody to the thyroid-stimulating hormone receptor itself. We talked about cross-linking and activation of receptors, right, by cross-linking, engaging two or more receptors on the cell surface. That's what's taking place here. We're not getting any thyroid-stimulating hormone over here. Once this cross-link takes place, we're going to transmit those signals to the interior of the cell. We're going to start to release T3 and T4. T3 and T4 are being released. They're still making their way over here and interacting with the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland is absolutely turning off the secretion of thyroid-stimulating hormone, but it doesn't matter, right? Just because there's no thyroid-stimulating hormone, and in, a Gra and in a Graves patient, there probably is a very low amount of thyroid-stimulating hormone, it doesn't matter. The thyroid cell is still being stimulated, and we're getting unregulated overproduction of T3 and T4. Increased metabolic rate, right? heart rate goes up, and all those things that are involved with excess hormones in the bloodstream because we have this autoantibody right, to the receptor itself because for some reason this antibody molecule is now capable, not capable, is now recognizing this thyroid-stimulating hormone and it's binding directly to it. So again, we're not getting any sort of damage here. I, eventually, you might suspect, just like before, that if this is on here, right, uh, certain cells with their FC receptors are going to be able to sense this. They might start phagocytosing and destroying the thyroid cells. But in this stage of the game, right, the misregulation is coming from too much T3 and T4 being produced and not being override, right, by, overridden by this negative feedback loop and because we have those autoantibodies binding to that receptor, okay? So, that's Graves' disease. Those antibodies bind and turns on the thyroid in a non-specific, in a non-feedback loop controlling way. Okay. So, why are we having all those antibodies taking place? We're having all those antibodies taking place because, right, we have the ability of this antibody unregulated to bind to and interfere with the normal functioning here of right, the nervous system and the endocrine system. The other thing that can take place if, right, if these antigens are bind or these autoantibodies are binding to autoantigens, if these antigens are not on the surface of a cell, right, if they're free in solution or in circulation, these autoantigens themselves, right? So we can build up this intracellular sort of interaction of these autoantibody-autoantigen complexes, right? We talked about these, and we have been talking about these immune complexes, right? and this is sort of the what we've been talking about with immune complexes, right? So these start to build up and build up and build up, and we said that they eventually are going to get cleared by neutrophils and inside the bloodstream, but as they start to build up, the only way that this immune complex right here is going to go away 
is if this is a foreign antigen and these antibodies are binding and then the neutrophils come in or this is making its way towards the kidney and being cleared inside the kidney, then this is eventually going to go away and these immune complexes aren't going to be there anymore because for whatever the reason, we're getting rid of these foreign antigens. In an autoimmune response, these antigens are never going to go away until the immune system has destroyed whatever it is that are making these foreign antigens. Well, sorry. <laughs> to whatever the immune system is making these antigens, and that's never going to happen. So these immune complexes are constantly going to be there. They're constantly going to build up and build up and build up, and we're never going to get rid of them. They build up in intercellular spaces, they build up in joint spaces, and tissue damage can take place that way. They can build up in general sort of circulation. Right? And in this example, even though this is building up, right, so somewhere, and what makes this so difficult to deal with, right, we sort of have this happening here, right? So here the B cells are somehow being stimulated to secrete these antibodies. White, for some reason, the B cells are being stimulated because something happened back here. Right? So even though whatever it was that was the initiating event happened here, we have all these multiple steps and all these different sort of avenues to lead towards this. We don't know, and this could be a, a, a number of different things that is going to be able to activate this pathway, but since we don't know what it is, Right? We don't know, right? we can see what happens, we're not sure why it has happened. Right? We're not sure why these autoantibodies or these antibodies that are now autoantibodies are attacking that particular antigen itself, what happens to be a self-antigen. So, even though we're getting all of this, and this is the bulk of the immunology that's taking place, the organ that's going to suffer here is going to be the kidney in this in this example, right? So, now we have a non-organ specific disease. So, those immune complexes build up, they make their way towards the kidney, and the kidney isn't able to clear those autoimmune complexes because there's just so many of them. So, here is a histological sort of diagram of a kidney itself. And you can see there are certain areas in here where we're using some immunohistochemistry with a fluorescent stain. So here you can see in this area of the kidney, right, it's really starting to glow quite brightly. So this is the control area of the kidney. So there are no autoantigens in this area or autoantibodies at all. It's only in this area that we're able to detect these autoantigens, right? So this is an individual nephron. And if you remember the kidney, right, the nephron is made up of, right, a glomerulus and a Bowman's capsule. So that's what we're looking at here. So you really can't see the difference between the Bowman's capsule and the other sort of aspect of the kidney itself, right? But the glomerulus is just a, is just a tangle of capillaries inside the kidney, and that's where right, the blood loses its solutes, and that's where the salt's going to be deposited. And then from the ability of that glomerulus to work, it's the Bowman's capsule that's going to take that salt and secreted out in the urine itself, right? This is just where the exchange takes place. So the same way we have fine capillaries in the lung and we're doing gas exchange in the lung, that's the same way that where you can think of it the same way as the circulatory system here in the kidney. So, like a piece of filter paper, 
that's being all clogged up, and that's what we're seeing here, right? We're getting all clogged up. We are getting more and more salt buildup inside the bloodstream. We're going to get kidney damage, and that patient is going right, to probably need a kidney transplant at one point in time if we can't stop this from happening. So clearly, right, it's not that we're staining autoantigens or autoantibodies here on the surface of the kidney itself. Here, we're staining the clog. So just like filter paper, right, this is the, the stuff that's sort of clogging the very fine structures here of this nephron. So again, kidney is just collateral damage here of what's going to be able to take place. That's what's causing it. This is what the result is going to be in this example. Yeah? If the disease doesn't originate with the kidney, then the kidney only Yep, unless you could stop that from happening. But at that point in time, right, it's sort of like doing a, trying to tell the immune system, don't attack that kidney, don't attack that heart, you know, we need that transplant. So here you've got to be able to save the patient first, and then maybe we can go back and use immunosuppressive drugs and try to stop you know, whatever is causing that right there. If we catch it fast enough, right, maybe this is going to be able to clear. Maybe the patient will be okay. But a lot of times, right, patients have no idea that this is taking place because they have no idea that this is taking place. So a patient's going to present in an emergency room or a doctor's office with this already. So clearly the first thing to do is to try to save that patient. So we might have to do dialysis to start with, and then we're going to start working on this, right? If we can sort of stop these B cells right here from releasing the antibody molecules by using immunosuppressive drugs, then maybe we can catch that in time. But if we can't, then we need a kidney transplant, and then we'll worry about this. Okay. So that's autoantibody. We can get, sometimes we can get, we can get direct cytotoxicity itself. The T cells and the NK cells are able to destroy the tissues all by themselves, okay? So right, when we think about autoimmune hemolytic anemia, autoantibodies to red blood cell antigens are going to trigger complement-mediated destruction of those red blood cells. We can think about rheumatoid arthritis. Right? Another autoimmune disease where those cytotoxic T cells can destroy cells in the joints of those patients as well. So we get all this sort of information in terms of cellular systems, antibody systems, and again, right, we could probably think of many, 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 many different more ways in which the immune system can be involved. But, right, you can now start looking at what's the etiology. Why is this taking place? Now we're back to back here. Right. We've seen you know, a couple of steps leading towards the presentation of the disease, but why is it taking place? Right? A lot of times the, the disease itself is going to be multifactorial, right. may act singularly or together, not just one aspect of the immune response right, being affected could take place. Right? Maybe over here something is happening to a, t to a helper cell and that helper cell is secreting more cytokines to be able to stimulate that B cell because something is happening back here which was mediated by that initial sort of insult back there. 
So it's usually going to be this multifactorial thing because as we've seen before, right, we have a lot of redundancy of the immune system. We have a lot of different interactions back and forth. We have a lot of different crosstalk in between the cells and, and, uh, and the other aspects of the immune system. So here, right, it's probably going to be multifactorial and that's what makes it so hard. So one of the major ones that people have been looking at is the release of sequestered antigens. And this means that there are antigens that are in areas that are called immune privilege sites. And immune privilege sites are places in the body where the immune system usually doesn't have any interaction. The immune system isn't usually at those areas. So, one of the major ones that you could think about in terms of looking at places where the immune system doesn't normally go, right, is the brain. Right? We have the blood-brain barrier. We usually don't get a lot of cells being able to cross the blood-brain barrier because, right, the blood-brain barrier, all that means now, or at least we know what it means now, is that those endothelial cells, remember we've been talking about those endothelial cells and how Right? The immune system can sort of, you know, it doesn't open them up that big, but we can increase vascular permeability. In the blood-brain barrier, that ain't happening. Right? Those cells stay close together all the time, just so things can't make their way into the brain. Right? So the brain is considered an immune privilege site. The eye is another one that's considered to be an immune privilege site, right? It's absence of a lymphatic system. When we looked at that sort of, uh, when we talked about the lymphatic system, we didn't see any lymph nodes or any lymph vessels at all, right, along inside the brain, and clearly we didn't see any in the eye itself. So you could just imagine if something happened in the eye, right, and you're thinking about the vitreous humor, right, that's sort of the liquid inside your eye that keeps your eye nice and tall, right? It's the, it's the liquid inside. It acts as a refractive sort of oil to be able to focus, right? Lights and photons onto your retina and onto your cones and your rods. So just imagine if at any one point in time you had macrophages making their way into the vitreous humor, right? All right, so here's my my best drawing of an eye, right? And we come back here to the optic nerve, and we got the iris, we got, we got all that other stuff, right? So the light comes in, it gets focused back here, and the rods and the cones, well, you get the idea. So just imagine if you had a bunch of macrophages in there. Oh, that would be a, some big-ass macrophage. But <laughs> just imagine if we had cells floating around in there trying to clean up whatever could be happening inside. It would, would constantly would have blurred vision, right? That would not happen, right? Or, well, it, I guess it could happen, right? But it would not be a good thing. You know, a lot of times when you get whatever that stuff is inside your eye, it looks like hairs, right? And you can see it sort of moving around. Just imagine that, only if this was all macrophages and neutrophils, right? And, and lymphocytes and things like that. So the eye is an immune privilege site, right? The immune system usually doesn't go there. The testes is an immune privilege site during development of a child in utero, right? The developing fetus is an immune privilege site. Right? That's sort of the major sort of, right, 
thing when you think about in terms of transplantation, right? Why doesn't the immune system reject, right, that foreigner growing in the interior of the mother's body? Right? Clearly, that developing fetus, that in utero creature, has nothing to, well, has half to do with mom, right? So clearly, it's a lot foreign to mom, but nothing happens to it, right, normally, right? We, there are times when we can get autoimmune and we can get trouble during, right, sort of pregnancy. But in general, right, the uterus, the developing uterus and everything in the fetus is an immune privilege site. So, certain things in terms of eye injuries, right, antibodies can be made to the lens crystalline protein. When you think about all the proteins in your body, right, the lens proteins are probably the most unique ones, right? Because there they are. They're clear. All these proteins, right, I can't see through these proteins, but lens crystalline protein is a very specific protein. It's a very specialized protein. Right? The immune system, it is thought, never really comes into contact with, with the uh, lens crystalline protein. So if there's any sort of eye damage, right, if anything takes place, and that's going to free up some of this lens crystalline protein, then the immune system is going to be able to recognize that as being a foreign antigen. And then we can have destruction of the eye at that point in place because we've broken this sort of privilege. Right? The immune system is now going into an immune privilege site. When you think about the vas deferens, right? the vas deferens are the tubes that carry sperm from the testes. If you get any sort of injury to the vas deferens, you can make anti-sperm antibodies. And clearly, we don't need macrophages, we don't need any sort of antibodies interfering with our sex cells. Right? So if we're making antibodies to the sperm, then the sperm will be coated in antibodies and the sperm won't be able to do what it gets paid to do, right? Which is recognize the egg, bind to the egg, and fertilize the egg. So again, right, testes are uh, uh, an immune privilege site. So that's another, or one of the major ideas about how this is taking place. Right, if we talked about regulatory T cells, Right? We had a discussion about regulatory T-cells. Regulatory T-cells are the T-cells that are the opposite to helper T-cells. If helper T-cells are turning on the immune system, regulatory T-cells are turning off the immune system. So if we have decreased regulatory T-cell function, decreased ability to turn off the immune system, right, then we're always going to have the positive signal that are being generated by T-helper cells. That could be involved with this misregulation itself. Another sort of one that people are looking at a lot is uh, the, the, the concept of antigen mimicry. Right? Antigen mimicry deals with a region of a non-self protein or a pathogen that may resemble a particular self component. Right? Remember, we talked about this. We talked about how there's no difference between a self amino acid and a non-self amino acid. So there are going to be certain places in protein structures between self-proteins and foreign proteins where we're going to get a lot of overlap. So here are some of the classic examples. All the black up here are amino acids that aren't shared by 
right? A self molecule and a foreign molecule. All the blue amino acids here are areas that are shared in amino acid sequence between a self-protein, uh, self self not a peptide, right? There's no one might be looking at a peptide. It's a self-protein and a foreign peptide, and a foreign protein itself. So we said that, right? Usually an epitope is anywhere from three to four to five amino acids or so. So here we got a couple of different epitopes right here. So if we have antibodies against this protein from the polio virus, right, it's going to share a lot of similarity with the acetylcholine receptor. Right? There we might have a, a reason for mycemia gravis right here. Right? Here's insulin receptor and uh, a rabies glycoprotein. Could this be the interaction? that is going to be able to cause diabetes, right? We have a whole bunch of these different ones that are looking here, right? Here's measles virus protein, the P3 protein. Several different epitopes that it's going to be able to share with myelin basic protein, right? The, the protein that is coating the outer sort of area of myelin sheaths in terms of multiple sclerosis. Reaction with the antibody to the myelin basic protein, it's similar to that measles P3 protein. So if there are antibodies against the P3 protein and they're going to be able to interact with that myelin basic protein, right, here in terms of right, nerves and dendrites and the neuron itself, myelin sheath is able to act as an insulator as, it carry, as the nerve impulse is carried along and making its way towards the end of the nerve. If this myelin sheath becomes un, well, not un, well, becomes damaged, right, then it starts to wear away and wear away, the nerve impulse isn't going to travel down that axon as effectively as it can. And this could be brought about by the fact that T cells are going to be able to recognize that epitope and start destroying that myelin basic protein that is the major component of that myelin sheath. So we got all these sort of different ways in which this is going to, that this might be able to take place, right? So that's antigen mimicry. And this is being sort of studied and a lot more examples are being made as we're getting more and more and more interaction and more and more protein sequence to be able to see how this is taking place. Right? We can continue on. Everything we've talked about before. Maybe there's going to be some sort of defect in a hematopoietic stem cell. Right? If it's a primary immunodeficiency, that could add to this auto-reactive or this autoimmune sort of interaction that's going to be able to take place. Right? If those stem cells aren't functioning properly, then every single cell, every single cell that's going to be made, that's going to differentiate from that hematopoietic stem cell is going to be able to participate in this autoimmune uh, reaction. Some sort of thymic defect. If those T cells aren't being taught properly inside the thymus, if the T cells are leaving the thymus without undergoing positive or negative selection, so those T cells are going to be able to interact. Either the cells or the architecture of the thymus could be missing or damaged. So that can also start these autoimmune reactions from taking place. We talked a lot about polyclonal B cell activators. We talked a lot about mitogens themselves, right? 
if we have exogenous mitogens, either bacterial or viral products, to be able to activate B cells directly with no T cell help. Right? If we get a non-polyclonal sort of reaction from those B cells and we get multiple clones of B cells being activated non-specifically, we're going to get a lot more antibody molecules in circulation. Right? This appears to be very transient because once you get rid of those bacterial or those viral products, right, it is going to be able to be turned off rather rapidly, so it may not be so important, but it has been seen in things like lupus. And a lot of times it's going to evoke the IgM molecule. Right? We know that IgM isn't as dangerous as the high affinity IgG since, right, most of the damage that we can talk about is going to be done by those high affinity IgG antibody molecules. Okay. So this is another area, right? We can go on. We can go on for quite some time talking about these things, right? But all of these ones that we're talking about are major sort of examples. So if we're not looking at antibody molecules, we can look at MHC molecules, right? So we can get Right? A bad or aberrant expression of class two MHC antigens. And that is seen right, in areas or in, in certain diseases where cells that don't normally have class two antigens can be induced to express class two antigens. So that is going to allow for more interaction of T helper cells and these class II antigens. So if these cells that are now producing these MHC class II antigens now become antigen presenting cells and they are presenting the wrong peptide for whatever the reason, then those T helper cells with their T cell receptors are going to be able to bind to and be stimulated by that peptide and they're going to be able to now enter the fray inappropriately. The classic example are certain epithelial cells in the thyroid can be induced by increased interferon gamma right, to start expressing class II molecules. So, if we're looking at increases in interferon gamma, right, and again, those are those T helper cells that are going to be secreting interferon gamma, and they're doing that to stimulate antigen-presenting cells to present more class II MHC molecules. Here, that inappropriate expression, right, of these epithelial cells could lead to inappropriate expression of the wrong antigen or the wrong peptide on the surface of those cells, right? So the T helper cells are going to be able to just recognize that MHC class II molecule. They don't care who's presenting it, right? If it's being presented, there must be something wrong. So they're going to be able to be stimulated and they're going to be able to release even more interferon gamma and have even more inappropriate expression of these MHC class II molecules by these, by these epithelial cells. Again, defects in production and response to signals of B cell proliferation and differentiation. B cells are going to be able to react inappropriately to a given signal if we're going to get a lot of cytokines being secreted by those T helper cells that are being inappropriately stimulated by. Right? We can sort of tie these together. Here's more of the overlap between things that are taking place. Right? So we can get B cells inappropriately signaled. T cells themselves could produce too little or too much of a factor that's going to be able to stimulate B cells, right? So those cytokines 
that those T helper cells are releasing are going to be able to stimulate the B cells or if those T helper cells aren't releasing cytokines that could turn off that B cell response then we're going to get excess antibody production. Right? These have been seen, these are major mechanisms of lupus, right? Systemic lupus erythematosus. We had some discussions and we'll have some more discussions about lupus itself. Right? But antibody molecules, right? Inappropriate antibody molecules being released towards self tissues are one of the major mechanisms of lupus. Okay, so, so much for, right? Etiology, now we can move towards susceptibility. Why do certain patients are more prone to these autoimmune diseases? As it turns out, everything we've been talking about, right, not everything, but everything that we can be talking about or that we have talked about could trace its way back to the T helper cell. So all models implicate the T helper cell as the primary mediator, right, in terms of either the cellular response of the cell itself or the inappropriate release, either too much or too little, of a cytokine itself, right, is one of the major players of autoimmune diseases. Because everything we've been talking about, right, you can sort of see the T helper cell itself. So, if it's a release of a sequestered antigen, the T cell could be stimulated, right? Inappropriate MHC expression, the T helper cell is going to be implicated, right? If the antigen presenting cell, right, is going to be able to cross-react. So here, molecular mimicry, because the T cell is going to be able to be stimulated itself, right? The T helper cell is going to be able to interact with the macrophages. T helper cell is going to release interferon gamma. Here's interferon gamma being released, inappropriate sort of stimulation by those uh, epithelial cells can result in inappropriate responses downstream from the T helper cell of the cytotoxic T cell, of activated macrophages, or of the B cells themselves. So the T cell is going to be able to inappropriately stimulate B cells antibodies to self going to result in any sort of tissue damage there. So all these things can trace their way back to the T helper cell. And that's because clearly, as we've seen, the T helper cell is the major cell, right? It's sort of the major player in the cellular immune response and the cellular immune response of either stimulating macrophages or stimulating B cells, which is now going to be an appropriate humoral response is taking place. So all these things can take place. We've now starting to see more and more genetic factors. When we talked about the MHC molecules, right? Evidence is growing that MHC molecules usually class two MHC molecules. And again, that's going to tie in to the T cell, to the T helper cell itself because if we're looking at class 2, right, and MHC class 2 molecules, a lot of animal models have been used to show that, right, these MHC molecules are involved. So if you look at some of the latest sort of data, and if, let's say, we're looking at, right, type 1 diabetes down here, and we're looking at a certain HLA allele, so the relative risk if you have this DR3, DR4 allele is about 25 percent, 
Okay, so in a healthy control, if you're looking at, right, DR3, DR4, 24, and 17, but in patients that have diabetes, we have this overwhelming sort of increase in patients who have diabetes who are, a, who are, who possess, right, or who have these different alleles in terms of those MHC molecules. As we are sequencing more and more and more genomes, or now we are looking at right, the sort of specific areas of those MHC genes, and we said when we, look, we were talking about those MHC genes that these were the genes that were most involved with misregulation of the immune system. Right? So more and more and more information is starting to show up, right? A lot of in, a lot of interesting uh, sort of conclusions coming from these DR3, DR4 alleles, right, from these MHC alleles. So it looks like we do have some genetic factors that are involved. A lot of viral and bacterial factors can be involved, right? We talked about antigen mimicry, or if these pathogens are directly infecting the immune response, these factors are going to be inappropriately released, and that could be able to be the stimulatory sort of mechanism, right? Increased pathogens could be the stimulatory mechanism for this malfunction, right, along the line leading towards, right, it doesn't have to lead towards this, but it could lead towards anything that we see as the outcome to this autoimmune disease. So when we start looking at all this information, right, it all comes back to the ability of the immune system right, to be tolerant. The active state of specific immunologic non-responsiveness induced by prior exposure to an antigen. Right? We can all become tolerant to certain things. We can all be taught to become tolerant to certain things. When I was a little kid, I was taught to be tolerant of my little sister, yeah, so she could get away with everything. But, oh, I couldn't. Well, but that's neither here nor there. So, right, specific immunological non-responsiveness. So we have a whole bunch of examples of tolerance. So we've talked a lot about natural tolerance, right, naturally. Animals becoming non-responsive to self-antigens, right? The T-cells inside the thymus. And there is a now a, uh, an area of immunology where we can induce tolerance experimentally. We can stimulate a, an animal to become tolerant of a specific antigen. So an experimental tolerance Right? Again, a state in which an animal will fail to respond to an antigen that would normally be immunogenic. So these are a lot of the animal systems, the model systems that are being used and have been used to study autoimmunity. Right? So if that tolerance to self fails to develop, then we get autoimmunity. So we can induce autoimmunity by using experimental tolerance. It's a major sort of experimental system to look at autoimmune diseases. So antigens that induce a state of tolerance, right, we're going to call them tolerogens. Right? Remember, antigens that induce lymphocyte activation, right, 
we call them immunogens, right? So here, we're talking about tolerogens. When we talk about allergic reactions, we'll be talking about allergens. Right? We can put any sort of G-E-N on the end, and we can get, right, a, 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 the ability to be able to look at different antigens themselves. Okay? So, in terms of the property of tolerance induction, right, tolerance is either going to be learned or acquired. So in natural tolerance, it's learned. With experimental tolerance, it's going to be uh, acquired. Right? Tolerance itself is induced more readily in immature lymphocytes. That's why when we get those thymocytes that are leaving the bone marrow and making their way towards the thymus, they are right, in a state where they're ready to be educated to self-non-self antigens. And maintenance of tolerance is going to depend on a persistence of that antigen itself. So that's why some people think that there are certain mechanisms that are taking place in the periphery that are keeping T-cells that have left the thymus or T-cells that never go to the thymus. Right? I don't know how many of our T-cells, and I'm saying that hour altogether because we're all not 13 or 14 or even 12 anymore. Right? So our thymus here is not so big at all. Right? So there's got to be a mechanism for how our T-cells are being educated without a thymus. So it's sort of thought that persistence of the antigen because of these experiments that have been done with tolerance. Right? So when we talk about tolerance, yeah, it's a little bit hokey. Right? The structure, the dosage, the route of administration is going to be important. Right? So generally, antigens introduced orally lead to tolerance. Right? We are being, not taught, but we are, toler we are being able to be tolerant of all sorts of different antigens in our digestive system. Our immune system doesn't know that those peptides that we're breaking down from that apple we just ate are a food source for us. Right? Those antigens are going to be released into the bloodstream. They're going to make their way and become carbon sources for cells in the distant part of the body. Right? Our immune system doesn't know, but somehow the immune system is being tolerized to food antigens. Okay. So you don't want to have an immune response to ingested proteins that are necessary for nutrition, right? So this is a big sort of area where this is taking place. Uh, okay, I guess we're done. I guess I'm done. All right, Wednesday and Friday, you guys are going back to work. All right, so presentations on Wednesday, presentations on Friday. See you then.